0: Well, parenting is absolutely a, a noble and a holy task, and those of us who have been blessed with the privilege of being parents, we know that there are many rewards that come with that and rewarding moments, but there are also many challenges that come with it as well. And now, my kids are in their 20s now, but I remember when they were younger looking at them and thinking all the things that we were going to do, all the things that I was going to teach them. Uh, activities like like how to walk and how to talk, uh, how to ride a bike, how to build ramps for that bike and, and for the skateboards, uh, thinking about how I'm going to teach them to skate so they can play hockey. And in fact, when Sam was old enough to register for hockey, I was so excited that, I, that I, we registered him and I took him down, we bought him all of his equipment, we bought him his stick, we got him all ready to go, and then we got the notice that the hockey practice was coming up in about three days, and I realized I forgot to teach him how to skate. And so... So we, we raced down the community rink, and I just, we spent a bunch of hours, and he learned how to skate, his kind of the tripod skate on a hockey stick as he moved around. And, but he, he developed and turned into a beautiful, a beautiful skater. I was going to teach them things like values, how to share, how to be kind to people, take responsibility for themselves in all seasons of life, teach them about God's love for them. You know, and as these precious little bundles of joy and poop were placed into our care... <laughs> Yeah, it's truth, right? (laughs) You know, as they got older, I came to realize there's one thing you don't have to teach them. You don't have to teach them how to argue. (laughs) They tend to come by that quite naturally, and and sometimes in a rather competitive manner with the boys. And they would argue over things like whether they or their hero, whoever that hero may be, was better. It, It would turn into discussions about Superman versus Batman, about who could beat who at certain video games, who deserved to have number 22 on their hockey jersey because they couldn't both have it, the classic debate over Crosby versus Ovechkin, who should load the dishwasher, and who didn't have to do it because they did it last time, all these arguments, and that was just last night, that that all of these things came up. (laughs) But quite often it would start as sort of a friendly taunt, and then somebody's pride would get hurt, and then it would turn into a fight, And then we would hear the fight escalating until dad would have to say, do I need to come down there and settle this? And I came to appreciate the saying that somebody shared with me once. that says this. It says, parenting would be easy if it wasn't for kids. It would. Parenting would be so easy if it wasn't for kids. You know, I, I think that... Not only do I appreciate that saying, I I have a feeling that there were times when Jesus had a similar thought as he was journeying with his disciples. He probably thought at some point, you know, discipling would be easy if it wasn't for disciples. (laughs) Because Jesus provided all these wonderful lessons, these profound lessons, incredible examples on God's heart. He revealed God's heart and will and, and revealed the kingdom of God amongst these people. And so often they just didn't get it. You know, in this series that we started last week that we're walking through over the next couple of weeks, we're gonna focus on some of these lessons that that Jesus taught his disciples while they were on the way to Jerusalem, these lessons he taught at the end of his ministry while they were on the way to Easter. And we talked last week by beginning in Mark chapter eight, we talked about the way of the cross where Jesus is, is, is talking to disciples and trying to explain to them their need to turn from human concerns to, to the concerns of God, and that if they would accept that, that transition in their lives to, to release the concerns of, of themselves and adopt the concerns of God, that if they would do that, it required a demand upon them. It demanded that they would deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him, even at the threat of loss in this world. It was an impactful lesson, I think, for them, but also I know for many of us here, it was an impactful lesson. I, I've heard from many last week who were challenged and convicted by that, and thank you for sharing that with us. But this, this lesson, for example, is as true then as it is for us today, and yet the disciples still struggled to understand, and, and perhaps we have more struggling ourselves to do with our walk with Christ. And so, Jesus continues. Jesus continues to teach his disciples and us in the way as they journeyed along the way to the cross where he would become the way. I want to pick up our story today just shortly after where we left off last week. We're going to pick up in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 33. If you want to use uh, one of the Pew Bibles to follow along, you can find that on page 821 in the Pew Bible you have there. And as you're finding that on your own Bible or on your phones or in the Pew Bible, it's it just to kind of orientate you. As I mentioned last week, this is a, Jesus and the disciples are making their way towards Jerusalem. They're, they're sort of heading south towards us. And they've now passed south through Galilee. And they've come to a place called Capernaum. And we read this in verse 33. They came to Capernaum. And when he, that is Jesus, was in the house that they are staying at in this town, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had been arguing about who was the greatest. No one's really sure how it all started or who said what first. But eventually, as they walk along the road, the conversation goes from just pleasant, casual things. It eventually morphs into this discussion about who's the greatest. Now, if I had to guess who started it, I would vote for Peter (laughs) to be the one who started it. Who probably said something about being the spokesman for the group, or being the the chief of all disciples, which which didn't sit well with all of them, in particular John, who had a bit of a rivalry with Peter. And John was very quick to remind Peter, but wait a second, don't forget, I'm the one that Jesus loves. Which didn't sit well with everybody, especially Bartholomew, who most of them forgot was even there in the first place. He didn't say a whole lot along the ways. And and, and he disagreed, but he decided not to say too much. But, But that all concerned Thomas, the discussion that they were having. So Thomas spoke up and said, I seriously doubt that any of you will be the greatest amongst the disciples. But they get to the house and they learn that Jesus has overheard their conversation. And they're rather embarrassed that they've had this selfish, prideful discussion. Especially embarrassed on the heels of the event that had just recently taken place in their journeys with Jesus. You see, just before this, probably a day or two before this, the disciples had encountered a father whose son was was being impacted by an impure spirit. It would make him do awful things, and it it had plagued this man's son for his entire life. And the father pleads with the disciples please heal my son, bring freedom to him. And the disciples tried. They tried their very best, but they were unable to do so. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. You can read about this in in Mark 9, starting in verse 14. Jesus shows up, and the Father asks him. And and Jesus is able to, to bring freedom to this man's son. And so the disciples are curious. Why could you do it, but we couldn't? And so they ask Jesus afterwards. Why is it that you could heal this boy, but we could not do it? And Jesus said this to them in verse 29. He said, this type can only be driven out by prayer. Which is a bit of a cryptic answer, but what Jesus was kind of unpacking for them, he's saying that you guys have pridefully taken for granted the power that's been given to you. You've lost touch with the source of the power. You somehow have come to believe that the power to heal, to bring freedom exists inherently within you. You've forgotten that you need to look to God and that the power to do these things resides with him By through prayer and through connection to him. You can tap into that power because it resides in him. It is God's greatness that is exercised in these moments, not your own. And As he's teaching this, a short time later, they start having the discussion about who's the greatest, which prompts Jesus to take this moment to also teach them yet again about what they were on their way to. We pick this up in, in verse 31 and 32, where it says, Because of all this that had been taking place, he said to them, Guys, remember, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him, and after three days he will rise again. But they didn't understand. They didn't understand. They didn't know what he meant. And they were just simply afraid to ask him about it. Now, uh, maybe they didn't understand. Maybe they just lacked the understanding to pick up what he was talking about, or, or maybe they just didn't want to hear any more of what he was saying because it was it was hard to hear. But, but either way, they were still focused upon human concerns. How do we know that? Because Jesus just earlier in his previous teaching had challenged them about it, and as they walk along the way, even after this event, their conversation still turns to who's the greatest. You no, know, conversations like that can only happen, and they happen in today's world as well. And they can only happen when people start playing a game called the comparison game. And all of us to some degree are familiar with the comparison game, some more than others, but we're all familiar with this to some degree, playing the comparison game. And the way you play the game is you simply you simply assess where you stand in a crowd. And it's often a game we play in our mind. But when we play the game in our mind, it is revealed through our actions and through our thoughts afterwards. You know, we've all, to some extent, been associated with this or done it ourselves. If you you walk into a gym, there's an assessment of who's the strongest. When you walk into a room or to an office, an assessment of who has the most authority. When you walk into a party, who's the prettiest? When you go to a team, who's the most athletic? These are assessments that take place as we play the comparison game. And the end result of this game is this, it either pumps the tires of somebody, kind of kind of pumps them up a little bit, or it deflates their tires. It just deflates them. But then we act accordingly to however we assess the situation. Now, the degree to which a person will focus upon human concerns will be directly related to the level and the frequency with which they play the comparison game. If a person is highly concerned with the things of this world, with success and greatness as is measured in this world, they will probably find themselves playing the comparison game rather frequently. And it's a dangerous game to play. Because when you play the comparison game, nobody ever wins that game. Because of this. Because when we play the comparison game, it either makes you feel superior or inferior. But neither of those ever brings honor to God. Because that is not the view nor the criteria that God wants us to view ourselves by. And it's not how he wants us to view others as well. It's not the criteria he wants us to use. And so, knowing the unhealthy results of playing a game such as this, Jesus takes the opportunity to correct his disciples on this. And he teaches them that that might be how things work in the world. But in God's kingdom, the way to greatness is not through comparing, the way to greatness is through serving. And we see this in verse 35 when Jesus says this to them. He says, Sitting down, Jesus called the 12. As I sat down in front of him, he took this teaching opportunity to say this to him. He said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last, and you must be a servant to all. This statement absolutely flips the script on how greatness is sought. It flips the script on how greatness is sought and how it's assessed within the world. You see... When we compare ourselves to one another, as Peter and John and Bartholomew and Thomas did, when we do that, it requires us to make a case for our superiority. But in the kingdom of God, the standard and the measurement for greatness, the means by which we evaluate such things, is completely changed. Because we no longer compare ourselves to each other, but instead God says, I am the standard. The comparison is not you against one another, it's you versus the standard that God has established. And compared to God, our own merit, based upon our own merit compared to God, we have no claim to status. We have no claim to position or authority. Compare our merit to God, we have no basis for forgiveness and therefore to stand righteous before God. And we come instead to realize that all of us, regardless of who we are, where we come from, or how long we have, have been serving, all of us have the same need of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We all have the same need. And we all found that find that need met at the foot of the cross, where we all kneel on level ground. We all kneel on level ground at the foot of the cross. Therefore, it can be said that to be great in the kingdom of God begins by accepting that you are not great. <laughs> it's hard to have an about greatness when we accept that compared to God, we are, we are not great. And, and to hear that phrase, it, it might pinch a little. Because to hear that phrase is a bit of a shot to our pride. And now it doesn't mean that you don't have value. It it doesn't mean that people won't do great things. It simply flips the script on how we assess and measure and evaluate those things. And when that happens, it calls us to stop comparing ourselves and what we have to others and instead to adopt a different view, a view of God and and the concerns of God in our lives. And this wasn't even a new teaching. You know, when Jesus said this to his disciples, he he said it this way for the first time. But this wasn't the first time that this principle had ever been taught. This actually finds its its origin in the, in the Old Testament. If we can go all the way back to Deut- Deuteronomy chapter 17, where, where God is establishing, kind of laying the foundation, the groundwork of what his kingdom will look like. When the Israelites eventually enter the promised land and set up their nation and set up you know, the kingdom in the promised land, God says, the day will come when you ask me for a king like all the other nations do. And in Deuteronomy 17, he's kind of explaining the groundwork of what this all looks like. And when we get to, um, when we get to verse uh, 15... He talks about the king himself, and this is what God says in Deuteronomy 17 that relates to kind of what Jesus is talking about here. He says, The king at this time, the king must not acquire a great number of horses for himself, he must not take a great many wives, he must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold, or he will be led astray. But when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of the law, and it is to be with him. He is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow it closely, and not to consider himself better than his fellow Israelite, so that he would turn to the left or to the right. God's priorities are pretty clear as we look at what he says there in Deuteronomy 17. The king, who is the highest authority in all of the land, the king who could argue it is first in the land, is to be a servant of all. He is to have a heart that is set upon the things of God, not upon the riches of this world. He is to consider himself to be one of the people, not to exalt himself above the people. You see how that fits in? The first will be last, and to be a servant of all. is kind of how Jesus explains it. And when Jesus uses that word servant, he, he uses this, uh, a specific Greek word that, that carried some meaning for them. And it carries some meaning for us, too. It just gets kind of shrouded in the word servant that we use. And it's, the Greek word is diakonos, which is where we get our, you know, the word deacon from. He says is to be a deacon of all people. And a deacon, very simply, is, is one who acts to meet the needs of another person. And you've, if you've been around church for a while, you've probably heard the word deacon at some point. And, and a deacon is just that. It's a person who acts to meet the needs of another person. And it shows up in a variety of ways. Uh, we talk about having our potluck in a couple of weeks. We need some people to come set up tables and chairs and serve and organize that. There's a, sort of the, the role of a deacon, if you will. There's people who come by and repair the facility to make sure we have lights and we have heat and we have air conditioning in the summer. They look after those sorts of things. We have people who do administrative responsibilities. They cut out circles and stars and hearts and crosses for the kids to do crafts on Sunday morning at Children's Church. They, they volunteer their time to go and, and be present in those ways. They, they count the offering, they go visit the sick, and they, they, they meet needs for the needy. These, these sorts of things. Uh, so we're somewhat familiar with this concept within the church world. But here's what I want you to understand. It, it, is that being a deacon is not just about having a position. But it's more accurately, I think, you're speaking about having a function having a function of serving those that God has brought into our care. And if we understand this as more of a function more than a position, which I think is true to how Jesus is using it here. He's using it more as a function of meeting the needs of others, more so than establishing a position within a church. If we understand it in that light, therefore this has basis beyond the church to anyone, especially a leader, but to anyone who can serve to meet the needs of another person that they have been given responsibility for. I was trying to think of an example of this, this past week. In particular, a leader in the world, an example of a leader in the world. And, you know, there, there are so many who, who just don't <laughs> exemplify this. You know, leaders of nations and leaders of, of multinational corporations who, who definitely have first and have the prestige and the privilege and the, and, and the greatness from worldly levels. But I was trying to find a leader who had sort of that platform and yet served as a deacon, serve to meet the needs of others, and you know. And there's one man who has absolutely kind of been enamored himself to the world lately, and the person that came to mind is the Ukrainian president, Zelensky. And here's why I thought about him. Now he's a captured the attention of the world by appealing for the plight of his people. Now. I think he's an example of what it looks like for the first to be last and to be a servant of all. Because you've probably heard in the news, or maybe you've even seen on TV, as he addresses world leaders, some of the most powerful people in the world, he addresses them. But when he does so, he makes no personal claims. He doesn't appear in a fancy suit. He doesn't put on a uniform and make sure his medals are polished. He doesn't start or at any point list his accolades or his accomplishments or his reasons why he should be listened to. And he lays no claim to special privilege. But instead, when he addresses the world, whether it be on media or addressing world leaders, he does so on the ground in the midst of his people in a war zone. He does so, so often unshaven, wearing not a suit or a uniform, but a Green Army t-shirt, passionately stating the case for his people, with a steely-eyed determination, fighting for his people, seeking to equip them, to encourage them, and to give them hope. Now, there's only a few of us who will ever be called to be servants of a nation or sor- servants of large corporations. But all of us who consider ourselves to be followers of Jesus Christ are called to flip the script on greatness in the world around us by setting our hearts to being servants of those whom God has called us to be servants of. Now, I don't think we have any world leaders in the room right now, I'm pretty sure we don't. But who have you been called to lead? I know we have people in the room who are called to lead businesses. I know there are people in the room who are leaders in classrooms and in schools. I know there are many, many people here who are called to be leaders of homes and leaders in communities and workplaces. And so I leave this question with you. What does it look like for you to be a deacon, to to be a servant of all in the places where you have been placed, What does it look like to be a servant of all and to seek greatness as God defines it in the places that you've been placed? It's something for us to be considering. Now, Jesus takes us one step further in explaining this a little more to his disciples, and I think for us as well, so we can see fully what this looks like. And he does so in verse 36 and 37. Where after Jesus said, in verse 35, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He, he then did this. He then took a little child whom he placed amongst them. And taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not just welcome me, but they welcome the one who sent me. Sometimes when we see children in scriptures, we, we think that they represent innocence. And sometimes they represent those who are kind of new to the faith and need to be protected. And, and, and there are places for that, but that's not the purpose of the child here. To understand the purpose of the child, I invite you to imagine the scene with me. As the disciples are all sitting on the floor of this home, and Jesus in the position of a rabbi or a teacher, would have been sitting as well, but maybe on a cushion or, or on a stool, slightly, slightly higher than them. And then he takes a child who, who maybe was just standing along the edge of the wall kind of listening and observing. And he takes that child and he, he stands the child in the middle of the disciples. And as the child stands amongst the sitting disciples, the, the, the child is peering, appears taller than the disciples do. It appears to be over the disciples. And what's the significance of this? You see, in the world at this time of Jesus, children were viewed to have no, they were not viewed well. They had no rights. They had no privileges. They, they had no social status. Children were even considered to be below slaves and at times had to obey the slaves of the house. It's how low the social standing of a child was. Now, thankfully, we have a different view of children today where, where in, in society and in church in particular, we see that children are valued and acknowledged. They're, they're served and they're welcomed. But particular time, in this particular culture, uh, children lacked any social capital. They lacked any power in the world at all. And therefore, there is zero personal benefit to serving a child. And the disciples, remember, the disciples had just been arguing over who is the greatest, who is the most worthy, who is to be recognized the most. And Jesus stands this child in their midst to contrast them. And in just case they miss the power of this visual metaphor of this child standing taller than them, Jesus explains to them, "Whoever welcomes one of these in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not just welcome the one does not just welcome me, but sent the one welcomes the one who sent me." You see, children in this setting, in this context, represent the marginalized and the vulnerable in our society. Those whom society declares don't matter. And repeatedly in Jesus' teaching, repeatedly in his life, in his ministry, we see that he revealed God's heart for such as these. And this week I was watching for such as these in my own ministry and the world around me. And, you know, and there's so many examples, I could not list them all, but I, I thought of the single moms that I spoke with, who are sort of the modern day version of the widow and the orphan. I thought of those in our community who are underhoused and underemployed and the poor amongst us. The man at the traffic light who's holding a cardboard sign with the hard life scrolled across his face as more people divert their gaze than make eye contact. As I sat in Tim Hortons just writing my sermon, I looked across the parking lot to a gas station where there was a man digging through through the trash looking for cans, essentially blending into the background like he wasn't even there ignored by those who are going about their lives. Now, I'm immensely thankful for the good hearts and the the work of the people here at West Meadows who strive to make a difference in the lives of these people. We have a mission to to bring new life to those who find themselves in in tough situations in Lewis Farms. We have community groups where people can come together, parents can come, and those who are struggling or need friendship or relationship can come and, and find that and visit and have friends. We, as was mentioned in the announcements, we have grief share where those who are mourning the loss of a loved one can come and find comfort and support. We have our food bank, which has gone to two days now and has the capacity very soon to, to serve 80 families a week in our community. It's expanding to offer a free store for clothes and items that if you want to be a part of, there's an information session following the service today in the cafe by the office. We have a benevolent support we talked about that supports our community here locally around us, but also around the world and beyond. And And when we see and we hear, one of the things I love about the DNA of the congregation we have here is that when we see and when we hear about a need, whether it's among us or beyond us, we strive to want to serve in that capacity. I love that. Part of the reason that we're proposing to reposition Pastor Andrew to be serving our community even greater, to free him up to do even more of a reach into our community in these sorts of ways. These are examples on how we can serve, how we can serve those, the vulnerable, the marginalized that are in the world around us. But did, there's one thing that gets missed, I think, sometimes in this verse, in this passage. It's, did you notice the word Jesus used four times in here? He used the word welcome. Welcome. He says, whoever welcomes a child welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Four times he uses it. And this word welcome is, it's a bit of an unfortunate translation because the word actually means more whoever shows hospitality. And hospitality is different than service. See, hospitality, I think, is a, is a, is a step beyond. It's, it's a step beyond an act of service to expressing value to expressing care and even equality with those around us. you know, We see an example of this in the ancient Near East time that, that Jesus lived and taught, but even in Eastern cultures today, hospitality is of great, great significance. And, and for somebody to invite you into their home for a meal and to share relationship and fellowship with you, it isn't just about making sure you're fed. It's not just about serving your needs for hunger. It's about communicating friendship. It's about communicating value and and, and care and even equality at times. And it's important to see the distinction here because it's possible to serve a person but still play the comparison game with that person. It's possible to do both of those things to serve a person and yet play the comparison game with that person. But to truly welcome and to truly show hospitality to somebody, it may not make you besties afterwards. But it will communicate that I see your value, that you are worthy of God's love, that Christ died for me and he died for you, and that we're on even ground at the foot of the cross. That's why Jesus says, if you welcome me in my name, meaning if you would, if you'll go and serve and interact and and be amongst people the way that I would do, to do the things that I would do, then you not only welcome them, but you welcome me as well. You show hospitality to me as well, Jesus says. And if you welcome me, you welcome the one who sent me. Meaning, if you do these things in my name, if you walk the path that I'm setting before you to path, if you follow my footsteps, you're not just welcoming them, you're not just welcoming me, but you're doing so in the heart of the one, in the will of the one who sent me. We're doing so in the very heart of God. Because that sort of activity actually beautifully reflects the very nature of God. You know, there's this theological term. Here's your million-dollar word for the day called uh, perichoresis, from perichoresis. And simply, here's what it means. It means that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that the Trinity, are not just in a static relationship, but through this idea of perichoresis, that, that the Trinity is in this constant movement in and around and in and out of and through one another as they eternally delight in the excellence and the hospitality of each other. The, the Trinity exists in this perfect eternal community of celebrating the excellence and the hospitality of one another. And, and that's great for within the Godhead itself, but we see in Scripture that, the, that the God delights in, extended, in offers that are extended from His creation, in offers that are extended from those who are created in His image, meaning those who are created also to extend hospitality. And when they extend hospitality to him, he delights in receiving that. We see this in Genesis chapter 18, when Abraham has the three visitors who come by, and Abraham invites them to come and stay with him. And, and, and he, he welcomes and receives that invitation. Luke 24, when the two men are walking along the road to Emmaus and Jesus joins them, and then they invite him to come in and have dinner and to, and to break bread with him. We also see it just in in every person's life who comes to a realization that they have a need of the grace and truth and forgiveness of Jesus in their lives. And then they welcome him into their lives. They welcome him into their lives. We see this concept in Revelation 20 verse 3 where Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. I knock, I, I, I await the invitation. I await the invitation of hospitality to come in. And if anyone will hear my voice, if anyone will hear my knocking and they open that door, I will come in. I will eat with them, with that person, and they will be with me. God exists in perfect eternal hospitality and loves the invitations that people extend as well. And if you have never opened the door of your heart to, to receive that invitation, to make that invitation, I encourage you, I invite you to do so today. If you have made that invitation to God in the past, but if you reflect a little bit, you go, you know, it's been a while since I've really shown some hospitality towards God. I've kind of gone my path and he's gone his. I encourage you again today to correct that and to get back in track in the way that he calls us to walk. I pray that many of us will have eyes to see our common need of him and that we will welcome him in. And then that we will follow in welcoming others to experience new life in Jesus as well. Especially the marginalized. Especially the vulnerable in the world around us. Because not only do they need the love and forgiveness of God just as much as we do. But so often they have hard stories. Harder stories than many of us can ever imagine. And those hard stories quite often lead to a negative self-concept. A negative narrative a lack of trust, and quite often a lack of belief that God even loves them. But you see, God doesn't just flip the script on how we define and pursue greatness. When God comes into a life, he also has the ability to bring new life to that person. And that new life can flip the script on their story too.
1: I don't belong and I refuse to believe that God was thinking of me. I realize this may be a shock, but I am loved and have a purpose is just a lie. Nobody cares whether I'm here or not. I will tell anyone who will listen that looking out for yourself is more important than surrendering to God. Let me share this with you. The Bible says God loves everyone, but this is not true in my life. God doesn't care about me. People tell me I'm too broken to be loved by God. I do not conclude that there are better days ahead. In the future, God will continue to turn a blind eye. No longer can it be said that I am loved, redeemed, and have a purpose. It will be evident that no one would care if I was gone. It is foolish to presume that God was thinking of me. God was thinking of me. It is foolish to presume that no one would care if I was gone. It will be evident that I am loved, redeemed, and have a purpose. No longer can it be said that God will continue to turn a blind eye. In the future, there are better days ahead. I do not conclude that I'm too broken to be loved by God. People tell me God doesn't care about me But this is not true in my life. The Bible says God loves everyone. Let me share this with you. Surrendering to God is more important than looking out for yourself. I will tell anyone who will listen that nobody cares whether I'm here or not is just a lie. I am loved and have a purpose. I realize this may be a shock, but God was thinking of me. And I refuse to believe that I don't belong.
0: You know, no matter what the world may say about you or anybody else, no matter what your inner dialogue may tell you some days, God loves you. And God invites you to receive and to live in his love. He invites you to allow him to flip your script. And then adds a new chapter to your life where he invites you to go forth and to invite others to experience new life in Jesus as well. He invites you to have the opportunity to redefine and to to re-examine how we pursue greatness. And instead of going according to the human concerns, to pursue greatness according to God's heart. According to God's definition. According to God's way. By meeting the needs of others. By serving and showing that they have value. And that they too are the beloved of God. This is the way. This is the way of greatness in God's kingdom.